Welcome to the Trade Secrets Inspections Podcast because you need to know. Here's your host, Rick Koyman. Welcome to the Trade Secrets Inspections Podcast. I'm your producer, Charlie McDermott, and once again, I'm here with Trade Secrets Inspections owner, Rick Koyman. Rick, how are you today? I'm doing excellent, Charlie. It is fantastic to be back with you again and sharing some knowledge and some information to help people out. You are the best at sharing knowledge. You are so not only insightful, but talk about, you know, you, you just you just know the ins and outs and the in-betweens. And uh, today, I know uh, you had mentioned we're going to talk about building codes, which is, you know, uh, hold on. Don't 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 anyone fall asleep on us. As, as you know, if you've listened to previous episodes, Rick, that's a way to really pull us in. And, and Rick, when it comes to building codes, it's probably not anything that your clients have like, you know, gone to the local jurisdictions and, and, and read all the language. But I know you are deep into it. Uh, so this is really important when it comes to, you know, buying, heck, even selling a home. I've heard some nightmare stories that things all of a sudden pop up out of nowhere. And, and uh, so I'm really excited about this. So I'm going to turn the microphone over to you and let's get into it. Fantastic. Yeah, today I want to talk about building codes. Why do we have building codes? Where did they come from? Some of the history. Um, why is it important to us, the average person? Um, how does it relate to me and my profession as an inspector, a home inspector? And and uh, and really, what is the general gist of what it's doing for us and the general population out there in our homes and our apartments and condos and all that good stuff? So. Just to start way back in the beginning, let's look at where did building code begin and who do we have to thank for it? Um, and our first known written building code, we have record found on, actually, it's carved in stone, <laughs> of all things. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. It's back from 1758 BC, King ah. Hamama Rabi wrote the first building code, and it basically laid out a guidance as to how a structure was to be built. And it stated, if a builder has built a house for a man and his work is not strong, and if that house has building failures and kills the householder, oh. that builder shall be slain. Wow, now that's a code. There you go, right? You know, yeah. that we could really simplify life by having codes like that, that it's just like, you know, hey, don't yeah. mess up. Focus when you're at work. And yeah, exactly. Let's get right to the point. And, you know, it's funny because wow. it, it really kind of cut to the gist back then. And, you know, it kept most people honest. And it, the only thing it really didn't cover was for the, the homeowner or family member yeah. that did it for themselves. Yeah. So yeah. You, you know, I guess. Well, uh, you know, minor detail. If you yeah. want, but <laughs> it wasn't part of the rules. <laughs> that's crazy wow so that that's where we have a history to begin with and then as we went on and we got more civilized i guess you could say or we started living in greater densities um, we all look back at london and the london fires back in 1666 mm. leveled the city and then more locally we can look at chicago and the chicago fires of 18 hundreds, late 1800s, 1870s. And, and they started looking at building codes and asking, um, how can we address risk? And, and more importantly, how can we address the risk to the adjacent building? 
You know, it was mm-hmm. one thing if you wanted to do it to yourself. But when we lived in higher densities, it started to affect our neighbors. And now we had responsibilities we had to uphold. Um, so they went with regulations that dealt with just that thing, you know, common walls between buildings that became a code. Um, dangerous practices such as wooden chimneys, you know, back when everybody was burning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you couldn't have a wood chimney. Can you believe that? What, what the heck? Make it a rule. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and then, you know, scenes as that seemed like such a great idea, it went on to deal with such basic things as, you know, having needed light and ventilation and, you know, well, let's have a fire escape and let's talk about potable water and toilets and sanitary drains and stairs, railings, basic safety stuff. So that's basically where it originates. And then, of course, you get into the late 1900s or the early 1900s, and we start talking about insurance. Um, Insurance begins with basically fire. You know, that that's the primary, the big risk. You know, this stuff all started with cities burning down. So, again, the fire commissions became where these rules started to originate. And it started with the National Board of Fire Underwriters. And they originally created what we call and still have as the National Building Code. And the whole purpose was to minimize risk to both the property and the building occupants. So, so the, the, the gist of things are... Why do we say we have building codes? It's simply for safety and, and to maintain, you know, some standard so that we have some consistency of expectation between each other as we live as neighbors. Yeah. Wow. wow. So, so these codes developed over time and got more complicated. And, and the fire commission started these original codes and they developed three different organizations, essentially. They had an international code. They had a residential code, which we still use, the international IRC, which is the standard code throughout the country. Um, And then they have an international energy commission code that deals with conservation of energy and power. And we have plumbing, electrical, and all those other things added to it now, too. Um, The big difference here in the United States is that none of these codes are federally enforced. This is all left up to the states. So even though the IRC exists in general, it's not a federal mandate, such as in other countries, there are federal codes. So everybody is the same, no matter where. Um, Here, we we like to leave it up to the states and states' rights, because we're United States. And so as we go from different states, there's different rules and different jurisdictions, again, have different rules within the state. Um, There are some jurisdictions that have no rules. To this day, there are some areas you go, there are no building codes. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, rural, rural America, for sure. You, there, there's no, there's no overseeing body established to create the code, so it still doesn't exist. Um, doesn't mean they can't go by the IRC, and that's generally what does happen. So we just default back to the basics of, you know, the international residential code. But the jurisdiction doesn't exist if the infrastructure doesn't exist. So mm-hmm. it's, it's basically people policing themselves in the community level. Um, in Florida, we have developed specific code, Florida and California in particular, high risk areas that led the country in development of code. Um, the first codes to come to Florida started in 74 
when the state adopted what we call the SBC, which was the Southern Building Council or the Southern or the Standard Building Code. And it was created by the Southern Building Code Congress. Keep all that straight. Wow, that's a mouthful. <laughs> right? And again, it was based on that International Residential Code, that IRC that started way back from the Fire Commission. Um, in 74, 74, the state enacted and adopted the use of that SBC, that Standard Building Code. And it was loosely enforced, but not really applied, but it was there as a reference almost, if you will. Um, in 94, they formed the International Code Council in Florida, and they formed what we call the FBC, which is the Florida Building Code. Um, the Florida Building Code was developed out of Miami. Um, and again, it was the result of devastation. As you know, this stuff started with fire, and, and in Florida, it started with Hurricane Andrew. Um, again, Hurricane Andrew came into South Florida and Homestead and basically erased it from the surface. Um, and the city said, wow, that was painful. Um, it was one of the biggest hits to the insurance industry nationally. Um, insurance as an industry became not available, which was a problem for development, of mm -hmm. course. Right. So, Miami developed, they took the IRC and said, okay, we're going to change things and we're going to make it, again, local jurisdiction to withstand these storms so that we can build back better. Um, and that's what they did. Uh, they developed that FBC. It became the SFBC, the South Florida Building Code, because the rest of the state didn't want to adopt it. They, uh, they, they didn't want to take part into it. Um, it didn't become a state-enacted thing until the late, early 2000s. So in 2001, the state finally adopted it from wow. one end to the other. But even at that point, North Florida still refused to participate in what was the FBC code because they insisted that they were not prone to hurricanes and storms. Um, hmm. We've learned from then, I would hope, that that mm -hmm. was not the case. But it is still that Miami-Dade is considered the high-velocity hurricane zone. It's just Miami-Dade County, and anything outside of that is still following the FBC code. So there are specifics that maintain the highest standard, but they're only pertinent to those two counties still. Um, uh -huh. Us over here in Collier, we live in what's called the high wind area or the 140, which is the step down from the high velocity zone. Um, so that essentially means that in the next up change from underwriting, they're going to include us in the high velocity hurricane zone or the high risk zone. But basically anything on the coast right now within 10 miles of the water is considered a high wind zone. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we developed the South Florida Building Code, and it became the law in March 1st of 2002. So prior to March 1, 2002, 
if you weren't in Miami-Dade County, you were not generally building to that FBC code. You might have been following the International Residential Code, or you might not have. Um, enforcement was very loosely followed, and again, it was handed out by the local jurisdiction, um, and it varies from county to county, literally. I mean, there's some you in jurisdictions, you know, each town, Benita, Fort Myers Beach, Estero, each county will have their own building department within them, and they all answer to the FBC in the end. But they make their own codes and they make them a little stricter or do whatever is in the interest of that city's board. And it's constantly changing because, you know, board members change and they make the rules up as they go. Um, in general, the building code is updated every three years. Um, the, the IRC and the associated codes that follow under it are changed on a three-year cycle. Um, we just changed. We're currently in the 2020 code cycle, which is the seventh edition. Um, on these changeover years, there's usually a delay in implementation of the changeover stuff just because trying to get all the contractors on the same page and up to speed with the changes. Um, that's not to say that the code doesn't change every year, though. There are yearly amendments that come out. So there'll be an amendment to the 2020 code every year until we get to the 2023 code. And then the whole thing will start over again. So it's an ever changing world of rules. And it is very much like reading tax code. It is hard to follow. It's very specific. Um, and this is where the confusion comes in for the homeowner and the city and the like of, well, the city inspected it, so why isn't it fine? Mm -hmm. um, that, that's, that's all well and good. And the purpose of these codes was just for safety and standard. The problem is the numbers. Okay, so if you look at it from the standpoint of what the city is doing, a, a, a city code employee, an ICC code worker, as we call them, an international code inspector, um, they basically are tasked with about anywhere between 25 and 50 stops in an eight-hour schedule. I mean, you do the math. You expect a code inspector to come in, and he has basically not more than 10 minutes allocated to that single stop. And at sometimes there's not even 10 minutes. So he's got a list of stuff in his head that's important to them on that cycle that they're looking to bring everybody up to, you know, that they come in and go, hey, this got changed and you didn't do it. And all the rest of the other stuff falls under the idea that the contractors are licensed and their license is predicated on them following the code. So it's kind of an after the fact assumption that they're doing it out of being a professional in their industry. So there's no way for you, the homeowner, to hold the city responsible 
for missing something in their code inspections. Um, they're doing it for their own purposes, essentially, which is really to keep contractors all on the same page with the city they're working under. So you're asking too much, basically, of your city code inspector to come out and make sure that your house is everything that you expected it to be if your builder or contractor came up short or didn't know the updates or went his own way on something. Um, that's where we come in as the private home inspector. Um, we fill that gap. I don't go out to do their job. I try not to reference code for the specific reason of attorney saying, well, you're acting as a code inspector then. Um, not a code inspector. I'm a home inspector. But the basics of what these things are supposed to be are referenced back to code. So, yes, I have to follow and reference the code, but I am an independent contractor who references overall safety. I look at workmanship. They don't. Um, I'm concerned with the overall product. They have no concern for how well it was done. They just want to know that it was done according to the rules. That doesn't mean it was done right. That just mean it was done according to the rule. Um, on the the sly, if you will, the, 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 the word on the street, as we call it, um, if a builder told you that they built your house to code, another way of looking at that is saying they built you the minimum quality yeah. product they could build you, mm -hmm. right? Or the biggest POS on the block. Wow. So there's a lot to be said um, yeah. just assuming that the city is looking out for you. And, and when you have what we call a COC issued for your brand new home, which is your certificate of occupancy certificate, your COC. And that basically means that the city's done with it. They've done all their due diligence on their part. They've sent out all their inspectors to the extent for the purposes that they want not you want, and they're done with it. That has nothing to do with how well they met your sales contract or your expectation or their due diligence to their warranty. Um, I go in and see new builds all the time that, you know, right from the get-go are seriously in need of repair. Um, currently, with the, the market the way it is, product line supply lines chains are hit and miss there's a lot of struggle to get doors and windows right now um, which is holding up the progress um, that leads to a contractor being pushed to do things they wouldn't otherwise do such as let's finish the interior without the doors and windows installed wow wow yeah that's going to lead to some issues right <laughs> Um, we're, we're starting off with a mold-filled building, and, and we're finishing it. Um, these things are not accounted for by the city. The city's not concerned with these things. Um, the, the way in which a contractor does his job is not of their concern. <laughs> That's not to say that 
if you are dissatisfied with your contractor, there's no way to go to the city and hold them, the contractor, responsible because the contractor is licensed through the city. And that's where the power comes from the homeowner. Um, you you have a, a, an ability and a right and a means of making a dispute or putting a lien or um, some kind of complaint on a contractor's license, um, holding up their additional permits so that they can't proceed with other work. Um, there's means to deal with these things, and that's why the city does exist. But it's not generally what most people think of, well, they're here to make sure that all these things are done for me. That's not the case. Um, so quick, that's, quick that's a question. Load. Yeah, go. Yeah, and I know you're just wrapping up, but uh, just just something comes to mind because because over the years I've done my share of you know not me personally, and that's where I'm going with this. You know, bringing contractors in to do work on the home renovations, you know, adding additions and all that. And I have no clue of the quality of work. I mean, I, obviously I trust my contractor and all that, but you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, wow, you know, it, it probably would make sense to bring in a home inspector just to make sure that. The work is done, not like you said, not just to code, but, you know, to, to the standards that I'm expecting. But I would have no clue if it's really done to that level. Is that do you find yourself doing a lot of that work as well? Yeah, I in particular, that's that's one of my niches in the industry. I come mm -hmm. from building. My background is, you know, 30 years of doing the work with the various trade industries. Um, so I know the exact answer to that question. I know that. The, the sleazy ways to get things done, mm. to hide things with, you know, what looks good, but, you know, behind the first layer isn't. Um, and that's exactly what we're getting at there. What is the workmanship? What is the quality of the product? Um, you know, just because it looks shiny doesn't mean it's going to hold up. And, mm. and yeah, absolutely. That is exactly what we are here to help with. Um, part of getting the word out there to the consumer is that the home inspector, not all, but there are us qualified home inspectors with the knowledge base and background that will be that person for you to do just that, that third party. Hey, I'm just here to tell that how it is. And this yeah. is what's going on. Yeah. And I it also takes, uh, you know, the awkwardness out of, you know, for, for me to, you know, not confront, but even just ask questions. Mm -hmm. One, the answers I'm not going to get because I'm not in that world, but also just that relationship side of the equation. When you bring you in to have that conversation, you get it. You can ask the right questions and I'm out of that maybe awkward situation. If something that we should come up that doesn't yeah. meet, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, a prime example is one I just did for a, a customer of a new build. Um, they had an inspection of some nature done that reported issues with the roof. Um, they brought it up with their contractor. The contractor denied, you know, said no, I don't agree, whatever. Left mm -hmm. them in limbo. They didn't know. Um, the home inspector wasn't very knowledgeable of what he was speaking of in that regard. Um, I guess they admitted that at that point, other than they deferred it for further evaluation. Um, and they found me um, listed through the Tile Roof Institute because that's one of my specialties. Um, so I go through the training just like the installer contractor does. Mm -hmm. So you're not kidding when <laughs> you tell me something, you're not going to fool me. So <laughs> I went out, you know, and I looked at it and I did, you know, my fair assessment. And 
in my opinion, there was nothing wrong with it. You know, I came down on the side of the contractor um, and there's no harm done there. So again, the, the, the customers brought back home to the contractor with the warm, fuzzy feeling of, you know, not being slighted. Yeah. You know, so it, it, there's a win on both sides. Yeah, yeah it is. Wow. Uh, great, great stuff, Rick. I know our listeners really appreciate the time you spent in, in, you know, weekly, daily, just staying on top of this and, and all the changes that'll probably hit tomorrow and next week and next month. And, you know, that's the wonderful thing about what you do. You know, I, I know our listeners, should they use your service, can depend on you being on top of everything and, and uh, serving the role of making sure that whether we're buying a home or selling a home or adding to our home, that it's, it's done the right way. So yep. awesome, yep. awesome stuff. Impartial, third party. Yep. Always here to help. Well, terrific. Well, look forward to the next episode, Rick. You have an awesome day. Uh, you too. It was great talking with you again, Charlie, and we'll do it again. Thanks for listening to the Trade Secrets Inspections Podcast. To learn more about Trade Secrets Inspections, go to www.tradesecretsinspections.com or call 239-537-1186.